0: Amen. Good morning. Have you worshiped the Lord yet? Amen. Amen. Our worship continues now as we study in his word. Let me invite you to take your Bibles and turn with me to the letter of Colossians. The letter we've been studying for the last few months, Colossians chapter 3. And this morning we're going to look at verses 4 through 7. Colossians chapter 3, verses 4 through 7. The title of this morning's message is Stop Feeding the Sin Monster. Stop Feeding the Sin Monster. And you have one. And you don't need to feed it, according to Colossians 3, verses 4 through 7. I'm going to read this passage of Scripture. I invite you to follow along with me. When Christ, who is our life, appears... Then you also will appear with him in glory. Therefore, put to death your members which are on the earth, fornication, uncleanness, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry. Because of these things, the wrath of God is coming upon the sons of disobedience in which you yourselves once walked when you lived in them what is a real Christian is it someone who simply goes to church or who holds to a certain set of beliefs in chapters 1 and 2 we have already studied that Paul taught that a real Christian is someone that God has changed on the inside Christians live differently because they are different and in chapters 3 and 4 Paul is saying that because of what God has done, every Christian, any Christian, can overcome sin in their life. And it's because of what God has done. And this is Paul's way. He tells us who you are in Christ, tells you what God has already done inside you, and then he says, based on that, how should you live? And so what has God done already? This is just by way of review. God has given you some things. And because he's given you these things, you have the capacity to overcome sin. He's given you a new identity. We saw that in chapter 3, verse 1. He says, you were raised with Christ. When he saved you, he didn't give you a package called salvation. He actually united you with Jesus. And the things that are true right now about Jesus Christ in relationship to this world, in relationship to sin, in relationship to his Father, is now true of you. He unites you with him. You have a new identity. You also have been given a new address. We saw in verse 2 that your life is hidden with Christ in God. I live on this earth, but this is not where I live. My real life is in Christ. He's given you a new identity and a new address. He's also given you a new power. We saw in verse 4 that we just read. He said, Christ who is our life. In chapter 1, verse 27 pam sang it a while ago we saw that christ is in you christ in you the hope of glory you have the very presence of jesus christ who never sinned living in you so you have a new power and you have a new destiny he says you're going to appear with him in glory in verse 4 when christ who is our life you will also appear with him in glory now he's not talking about glory as a place He's talking about glory as an existence. He's talking about the way you're going to appear, the way that you're going to look. He says, if I was going to translate it differently, I'd say you're going to appear with him glorious. Because what's happening inside of you is a transformation into the very likeness of Jesus Christ. And as he will one day shine in glory for all the world to see, those of us who know Christ are being transformed into the same glory that Jesus possesses. And so because of these things, you and I have the ability to overcome sin. Now in verses 4 through 7, we're going to explore two truths about real Christians. Here's the first one. Why every Christian needs to overcome sin. Why every Christian needs to overcome sin. Look again at verse 5. Therefore put to death your members which are on the earth. And then he lists them, fornication, uncleanness, passion, evil desire, and covetousness. He, he talks about them. Did you know that at several places in the oceans of the world, there are these currents that circulate always? And because of the way that we have discarded trash, particularly plastic, and it has been discarded off of ships And through rivers and streams, there are these massive circulating islands of plastic and garbage out in the middle of the ocean. One of these is called the Great Pacific Garbage Patch. It covers thousands of square miles. Nobody really knows how big it is. But it's out there in the Pacific and it's circulating. And in a study that's published this month in a journal called Marine Biology, Scientists have discovered that there's a certain microorganism and other parasites, but there's a certain microorganism that lives on the plastic that's circulating in this massive island of trash. And this microorganism originally was only found in the South Pacific, and it kills coral reefs. And it affects them. And it used to be only close to shore. It couldn't go out in the deep water. But now, attached to the plastic, it's circulating around the world. It's been found in the Caribbean. I can't even pronounce the name of it. It's called Halophiliculina. Gotta say that carefully. It's a single-celled organism, about the size of a sesame seed. And when you look at it under a microscope, it looks like it has two tiny devil horns. They're actually kind of wings that it used to move around the water. The authors call them, quote, tiny, terrifying little monsters. And no one believes it can be cleaned up. These piles of garbage are so big. No one thinks it can be cleaned up. But what can be done? Listen to their conclusion in their report. Any potential impacts of the debris-associated rafting community on coastal or pelagic ecosystems can be most effectively limited by an overall reduction in the quantity of plastic pollution introduced into the marine environment. You know, they get paid to write stuff like that. In other words, the author suggests the best way to weaken the trash island is to stop feeding it trash. Stop feeding the monster. The Apostle Paul's telling us in verse 5 that inside every Christian there is a great island of sinful desire that's circulating in your life. It's there. It's there right now. If you're breathing and hearing my voice... Inside of you, there is this great island circulating in your life. And he says, put to death your members which are on the earth. Now, what does he mean by members? He's not talking about church members. That's good, isn't it? Wow, well, that, that went right by you, didn't it? <laughs> the, word, the word members refers to your physical body. Typically, it refers to your appendages, your arm, your legs, your feet, your head, or your organs on the inside. But obviously, that's not what he's describing here. We know that because at the end of chapter 2, at the very last verse, he wrote these words. These things indeed have an appearance of wisdom and self-imposed religion, false humility, and neglect of the body, but are of no value against the indulgence of the flesh. Paul rejected asceticism as a way of defeating sin. So he's not saying when he says, put to death your members which are on the earth, to hurt your body. He's not talking about your physical body because he, he, he talked against asceticism at the end of chapter 2. So what's he talking about? Well, he tells us it's not your physical body, but it's something that's very much a part of you, and it lives inside of you. And he describes it in five ways. as fornication, uncleanness, passion, evil desire, and covetousness. And, and as you break that down, this is what we have to kill. This is what's still a part of you. Fornication, the desire uh, for, for sex outside of God's design. Now, Jesus defines it, and he quotes Genesis when he says, A man will leave his father and mother and cleave to his wife. A man and a woman. And in that context, God invented sex for that environment. He designed it to occur in the context of a covenant relationship that is permanent between one man and one woman for their entire life. And fornication is a basic desire he says inside of you for sex outside of God's design. He's very very straightforward. And then he uses the word uncleanness. And I wish you could see this because there's a word for purity or pure in the Greek language. This word is ah, that. It's the opposite of that. And uncleanness is the desire to think impure thoughts. And then he uses the word passion. This is the desire to experience what is wrong. And then he uses the word evil desire, the desire for immediate physical gratification. And then the last one is covetousness, the desire to possess more than you have. Now what's striking about this is he is not at this moment telling a non-Christian to put this to death inside of them. He's saying that to you and me, those of us that know Jesus. He's saying, you've got this swallowing mass of sinful desire inside of you, and you've got to put it to death. You've got to kill it. So what do these five members have in common? They each describe a different sinful desire. These are not acts of sin. These are desires for sin. And so if you're going to kill sin in your life, you've got to realize this. Sinful desire, here's the statement, sinful desire remains a part of your inner life while here on earth. You are not free of it until you are gone and in the presence of Christ, and then all sin is removed. But as long as you and I are here, we will experience sinful desire in some form. And he says we need to put this to death. You can be ashamed of what you want, you can be ashamed of what you desire, that no one else knows, but you should never be surprised by it because he said it's there. So the first truth is that sinful desire still lives in you, but there's a second truth, and that is how every Christian must overcome sin. Look again at verse 5. Therefore put to death, put to death, put to death your members which are on the earth. How do you put sinful desire death? That's the question. Here's the first thing. Decide to go to war against sinful desire. Decide to go to war against sinful desire. He starts off with the word therefore. The word therefore means that something has been said and that what he's telling you now, putting something to death, putting sinful desire to death, is based on what he just told you. what, What did he just tell you? He just told you. You have a new identity. You have a new address. You have a new power. You have a new destiny. You have these things in Christ, and Christ is in you. Therefore, based on what God has already done, based on your true identity, based on the presence of Jesus Christ, who lives in you, go to war with sin. And so there's an internal logic to what Paul is saying. If Christ is your life, and you are becoming like Him, and He is your reason for living, and you are seeking those things which are above, not things on the earth, and you have set your mind on things above, not on things on the earth, and your life is in Christ, and you are hidden in Christ, and He is your reason, He is your passion, He is what you are all about, then sin has to die. Sinful desire has to die. When he says it needs to be put to death, he's giving it to you as a command in the original language. It's not an option. If you're a believer this morning, you have got to do this. If you don't do this, the inference of what he is saying is that sinful desire is going to fill your mind and fill your heart. If you don't kill sin, it's going to fill your mind and it's going to fill your heart. It's also interesting how he words it in the original language. He doesn't talk about be killing sin as an ongoing process. He chooses to speak of it as a point-in-time action. It is a decisive moment, and that is how you kill sin. The moment you become aware of that sinful desire, you have to act decisively in that moment. You don't have the next moment. You don't have five moments from now. At the moment you become aware of that sinful desire, that is when you need to act. That is when you have to go to war. Now, you and I know we struggle with sin our entire life. We know that we have to walk in the Spirit and not fulfill the lust of the flesh. He tells us in Galatians 5. There's so much more that we need to know about fighting sin. It is a process that we go on throughout our life. But if I'm going to begin to fight sin, it starts with a decisive action. Every time I become aware of sinful desire, I've got to put it to death. And so real Christians are serious about fighting sin. Are you serious? Whatever it is, we're quick to notice other people's sins. But I can't fight your sins. I can't fight what's going on inside of you. I can only fight what's going on in here and you have to go to war against sin. If you're also serious about fighting sin, you're not gonna go to war, but number two, you need to treat sinful desire as a deadly enemy. My wife and my daughters have tender hearts. It's not happened just once, it's happened multiple times over the years of our marriage. They go out the door one morning to get the paper. They step outside the yard and suddenly there's some animal there, a cat, a dog, and it looks hungry always. <laughs> and so they run inside and they get a little dish and they put milk in there, or they put some kind of food or sandwich meat or something, and they go out and feed the animal. I tell them that's not a good thing. If you feed them, they will come. <laughs> and before long, they've been doing this over several days. Not only does it come, but it begins to grow on them. And they like it. And they say, Dad, isn't it cool to have this animal around? And then I get attached. <laughs> and I think it's cute. And then invariably somebody picks it up or the owner finds it or something like that. You cannot treat sin like a pet. You have to treat sin like a deadly enemy. Sin is a deadly monster. It is a life-threatening opponent. God has broken the bonds of sin in your life. Sin is not your master, but sin is your enemy. You cannot negotiate with what God has said to terminate. There's an old Puritan theologian named John Owen Late in the 17th century, he wrote, be killing sin, or it will be killing you. There's no neutral ground. It will kill your witness. It will kill your family. It will kill your children, your grandchildren, your friendships, your intimacy with God. It will strip you of integrity, of happiness. It will fill you with shame, embarrassment, guilt, dishonor you must become a warrior. You have to stay vigilant. There's no place on this side of heaven where you and I can rest and relax. When sin appears in my heart, I've got to treat it as a deadly force in my life that will affect me and everyone around me. You must become a warrior. Thirdly, to fight sin Go to war, treat it as a deadly enemy, and then cut off everything that gives life to sinful desire. And I've thought about this for years. This chapter is one that I memorized as a teenager when I first became a Christian. And I came to this passage again and again. Therefore, put to death your members which are on the earth. Therefore, put to death your members which are on the earth. And I always was asking, Lord, what does this mean? What does this mean? And putting something to death that seems to keep coming back was hard for me to understand. But you act decisively, you act obediently, but then I've got to understand what it, to what sense am I killing it? And the essence of killing something is to cut off the life flow from that thing. Whatever is sustaining it, whatever gives it life, I've got to stop feeding it. I've got to stop giving it life. How do you kill sin? You've got to stop feeding the sin monster. You notice a cage that we have on the platform today. Now, this is really the truth about sin in your life. God has caged the sin. I didn't know what to do for a sin monster, but this is what we came up with. Okay? I tried to make something scary and whatever. I even got a fake mouse, but I didn't think that would work. So anyway, here's what happens. When you become a Christian, before you're a Christian, the sin monster is loose. The sin monster can do anything it wants to with you. The Bible says sin is your master, and you are enslaved to sin. You say, well, I'm not enslaved to anyone. I do what I want to do when I want. No one tells me what to do. That's sin speaking. And so sin is loose. And when Christ saves you, sin is no longer your master. Why? Because you died. The penalty or the wages of sin is death. You died with Christ. And so whatever penalty needed to be exacted for sin in your life has already been paid. And so sin's power over you has been broken. And you have to act on that truth. But that is the truth. And so in essence, what God has done is he's caged the sin monster. And the monster is caged inside of you. Now at that point, you have a choice. You can feed the sin monster. Or you can starve the sin monster. Did you know what treason is? In the Constitution, U.S. Constitution, Article 3, Section 3, it says, treason against the United States shall consist only in levying war against them. In other words, treason is you going to war with your own country. Or in adhering to their enemies, giving them aid and comfort. So, by that definition, aiding sinful desire in your heart is treason to the God of the universe who saved you. And so, if you feed the caged sinful desire inside of you, what's going to happen? It's going to get bigger, it's going to get stronger, it's going to feel impossible to defeat. If you starve the sin monster, the influence gets weaker and weaker and weaker. And so you have a very real choice. Am I going to aid or give comfort to the enemy, or am I going to kill the enemy, cut off the life flow? You say, well, pastor, what are you talking about? Well, there's four areas where you've got to stop feeding the sin monster, where you provide aid or comfort to the enemy. And you're thinking, okay, he's going to lay on us some rules here. No, I'm not. I'm going to lay on you some very real ways in which you feed the sin monster. So hear me carefully. Your thought and idea choices, your thought and idea choices are powerful. And what you choose to think about will either feed or starve the sin monster. If you fill your mind with God's truth, the sin monster gets weaker and weaker. If you fill your mind, with sometimes things that appear to be benign. Tons and tons of information. um, Philosophy. Books about what is reality, or books about science. And there's nothing wrong with science. All truth is God's truth. But some of the philosophy undergirding some of the pursuits of science are anti-God. And when you fill your mind with books and philosophies and ideas that are not grounded in God's Word. It can influence you. It can weaken your devotion to Christ and feed the sinful desires of your heart. Guard your mind. Guard the ideas that flow through your mind. There's a second way in which you feed the sin monster. And by the way, I forgot to do something very important. You feed the monster ideas and thoughts. Here's a pork chop. Okay? This is what you don't want to do. You don't want to feed the sin monster. There's a second area you and I have to watch for. Your sight and sound choices. What you watch. What you listen to. Yes, I'm talking about media, music, movies, television, internet, messages, images. All of these things are powerful ways in which you feed the sin monster. And here's a drumstick. And if you keep looking and listening to things that draw you from God or they exhibit behaviors that God says is sin, you keep doing that. You're feeding the sin monster. There's times where we make excuses for what we do. We're watching something and we make the little ones leave the room. Well, they're not old enough to watch that. Can I suggest to you that you're not either? Sometimes I hear people say, well, those words don't bother me. Those scenes on the screen don't bother me. I'm strong enough to handle it. Can I tell you that it's not about being strong enough to handle it? It's about being sensitive to the Spirit of Christ. Can I be real honest with you? I find that in my walk with God, that when I'm not walking with Christ when I'm not spending time alone with Him, when I'm not seeking Him or walking in His Spirit moment by moment, that I am less sensitive to what I see and hear. And when I am walking with Christ, when I am seeking Him, when my heart is full of love for Him, when I want to please Him, when He is speaking to me and I'm being obedient to Him, that when I see something or hear something that is brutally sinful, my heart cringes. It's not about how strong you are. It's about how sensitive you are. So we got to be careful that our thoughts and our ideas, our sight and our sound choices are not feeding the monster. The third one is your place and time choices. Your place and time choices. Where you go and the events that you attend. You know that if you go to a certain place, you're going to be exposed to certain behaviors Actions, activities, drinks, food, uh, conversations that are going to feed the sin monster. And so at that point, you make the choice to go. It's a place. It's an event. and, And there may not be anything in and of itself that makes it sinful. But you know if you go there, you are feeding the sin monster in your life. And you've got to cut it off. When I was a youth pastor years ago, I had a young man come up to me. He was absolutely sincere. He said, Don, I have a problem when I'm alone with my girlfriend. I can't keep my hands to myself. I said, really? I said, where are you when this happens? He said, we're in my car. I said, where's your car? He said, well, we're parked somewhere privately. I said, is it daylight or dark? He said, it's dark. You've got to stop feeding the sin monster. You can say, well, we're just going to get to know each other better. Ha! We're going to go and we're just going to talk. We're going to pray together. Whatever you want to tell yourself. But you know that if you go to that place at that time, you are feeding the sin monster in your life. There's a fourth way in which you and I do it. We've got to choose our people carefully. Your people choices. Your people choices make a difference. If you run with people who aren't running with God, it's only a matter of time, and you will not be running with God. And if you feed that, if you surround yourself, if your closest companions are people who are not white-hot for Jesus, you are feeding the sin monster. You say, well, pastor, what about evangelism? Shouldn't we hang out with lost people? Shouldn't we befriend lost people in order to reach them for Christ? Absolutely. Absolutely. You should care about the spiritual condition of every person that you meet. But I can tell you that if your closest, most intimate friends, the people you rely on, the people you draw emotional support from, the people you listen to, whose counsel you value, whose influence is strong, if they are not people who are white hot for Jesus, it's going to take you down. Stop feeding the sin monster. Guard your heart and your friendships. Christ changed your life. It is true. And you may have come forward at some point and professed publicly that your trust in Christ. You may have been baptized as an indicator of your fellowship of Christ, your, your public profession of faith. You may attend church every week. you may even lead or teach or do something here in the church. Christ changed your life, it is true, but it is up to you to change your lifestyle. It is not automatic. Or he would not say, therefore, put to death your members which are on the earth. You have to decide. You have to choose. And let me tell you where it starts. It starts right here. Your heart. Your relationship with Jesus Christ. And so think about that for a moment. How is your heart, and what is the inclination of your heart towards Jesus? Do you love him? Do you want his will for your life? Are you looking forward to that day when you will see him face to face? Is his plan for your life the most exciting thing you can imagine, even though you don't know what it is? Is Jesus the focus of your heart, the thing that you think about when your mind is idle? Is he your passion? Is he your, your pursuit? That's where you have to begin. It's not about just stopping feeding the sin monster. You've got to have something that balances that out. You fight the sin monster with Jesus and your passion for Christ. For joy over it, we saw last week, he goes and sells all that he has and buys that farm. Why? Because he sees something that is like treasure in Christ and nothing else can compare. You know the old hymn, Turn Your Eyes Upon Jesus? Look full in his wonderful face. You do that. And the things of earth will grow strangely dim in the light of his glory and grace. You want to fight sin in your life? (laughs) Fall in love with Jesus again. And every day, fall in love with Jesus This morning, if you don't know Christ as your Lord and Savior, that's step one. The Bible tells us that the greatest problem you have in your life is an uncaged sin monster that's running around in your mind and your heart and your soul. I don't care how much good you do in life, you're not going to tame that monster. Oh, on the outside, on the outside, it may look like you're a disciplined, self controlled, righteous person. But on the inside, you know the truth. You know what you want. You know what you desire. You know what's going on. And that laundry list that Paul gave us, a fornication, uncleanness, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, you know those sinful desires are rambling around. And the Bible tells us that Jesus Christ came and died for you on the cross to take the penalty that your sins deserve. But he didn't just die so your sins could be forgiven. He died so sin could be defeated in your life. And he wants to set you free. The Bible tells us that if you will come to Christ and surrender your life to him, we call it faith. I'm putting my trust in Christ to have the directional control of me. The Bible says if you will come and put your trust in Christ like that, that he will save you, he will cage the sin monster, your sins will be forgiven, and he will start you on a new kind of life. And you will fall in love with Jesus Christ. And this morning, in just a moment, we're going to stand and sing, and I want to give you the opportunity to respond to that call that God is putting in your mind and your heart right now. You saw Luke Lovell be baptized? He experienced it. God pressed on his mind. God pressed on his heart. And he came to a place where he put his trust in Christ. Would you like to do that today? Is God calling you? Do you know that it's time for you to stop living for yourself and that God is calling you to put Him in the first place in your life? Let me ask you to bow your heads and to close your eyes. The Bible tells us, whosoever shall call on the name of the Lord shall be saved. When we stand and sing in just a moment, there'll be pastors standing at the end of each aisle. They're here to counsel with you and pray with you. They're not here to embarrass you. They'll answer your questions. They'll take all the time you need. If it's more time than we have in the invitation, they'll step out with you in the choir room next door and take all the time that you need to talk with you about your relationship with God. You can read the scriptures that they show you for yourself. We're not asking you to put your trust in us. We're asking you to put your trust in Christ. And so today, if you're ready, we invite you to come. And then, brother or sister in Christ, Maybe you realize this morning you've lost your first love and sinful desires running rampant in your mind and your heart. And this morning, you need to go to war against sin. Jesus didn't die on the cross just so you could go to heaven. He died on the cross so you could defeat sin. As God speaks to your heart, you can come speak to a pastor. You can come kneel at the front or or just bow your head where we'll be standing in just a moment but will you say yes to him?